Today we continue our six-part sermon series entitled Evangelism. It was Lee Strobel who identified six styles of evangelism. The direct style describes the person who's eager uh, to share the good news of Christ to anyone and everyone, including complete strangers, for that person is convinced that everybody needs the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Somebody like Peter and John are great examples of direct evangelism as they stood before the Sanhedrin. Intellectual style describes the person who is desiring to capture the heart and pursues the mind in order to do it. This person utilizes logic and reason and apologetics. Paul on Mars Hill is a phenomenal example of this style of evangelism. Then the invitational style is the person who just says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? So the Samaritan woman at the well is a prime example of one who just invites others to take seriously the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. The testimonial style is a person who incorporates his story, his redemption story, telling you what life was like before Jesus and how I met Jesus and how my life has been changed after Jesus. This is the blind man in John chapter 9. He simply says, this one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. The relational style. This describes the person who wants to take dear friends to our best friend, Jesus. It's the friends of the paralytic who did whatever they could to plop their buddy at the feet of Christ. And then the serving style. This person, this person wants to show Christ even before he or she speaks Christ. It's the life of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. This morning, we take a closer look at the intellectual style as Lee Strobel defines it. And I, I would go so far as to say that the intellectual style is a, is a concerted effort to engage the unbeliever in a gospel conversation that is culturally sensitive and Christologically saturated with the goal of complete surrender of head and heart to Christ. That's the intellectual style. It's a conversation that is culturally sensitive to that person. It is Christologically saturated in the hopes and the goal of complete surrender of both head and heart unto Christ. I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, stand at a reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today I want to read in your hearing Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. We encounter Paul on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17, let me begin at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we now know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything. From him, one man, from one man, he made every nation of men. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think That the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Now in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. Paul the Apostle arrived at Athens, not as a sightseer, but a soul winner. He was on his second missionary journey. He'd already been to places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. In all three of those towns, he preached the gospel and got kicked out of the city. Every place he went, there was a mixed response. Some people received the good news of Jesus Christ. Other other people rejected the good news of Jesus. What was true then is also true today. Not everybody rejects Jesus. Some do. Not everybody receives Jesus, but some will. Jesus has always received a mixed response. When you go about evangelism, when you go and share the claims of Christ to a friend, a family member, a complete stranger, I want you to know that when they receive the gospel, they're not receiving you. They're receiving Jesus. And if that's true, the flip side also has to be true. That when you present the gospel and they reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting your Jesus. It was J.I. Packer who correctly reminded us, evangelism is our work. Salvation is God's work. Don't ever get that backwards. We don't save anybody, but we are commissioned to tell everybody about Jesus. Evangelism is our work. Salvation is God's work. When Paul got to Athens, Luke tells us he was greatly distressed by all the idols. 
The city was full of them. There were temples, there were shrines, there were altars. They were all over the place on every corner. Every place Paul looked, he saw idols. Luke said he was greatly distressed. You know what that phrase means? He was hacked off. He was angry. He was perturbed. He was angry because these people were worshiping false gods. That anger, it could have made Paul paralyzed into doing nothing. Or it could have reduced him down to a cultural critic. But Paul was neither. Paul did not allow his anger towards the culture to paralyze him into doing nothing. Nor did he allow that frustration to reduce him down to a cultural critic. This is a tremendous insight for you and for me. Do you ever get frustrated by our culture? Do you ever look around our nation, look around the cities of of our country and say, why are all these people just groping in darkness? Why don't they see? Why don't they get it? And sometimes we look around and we see all the idols, all those things that take our attention and affection off of Jesus and we can have righteous indignation. We can get hacked off because of it. But don't let your frustration over lostness in our nation, in our culture, to paralyze you into doing nothing for the sake of the gospel. And don't let that frustration reduce you down to nothing more than a cultural critic who just goes around and says, well, this is what's wrong here, this is wrong here, this is wrong there, this is wrong there, everything's wrong. No, we need to take a page out of Acts 17. We don't need to be paralyzed into doing nothing. And we don't need to become a cultural critic who is negative about everything in our society. Paul went to Athens. Now, Athens was known uh, for literature and for art, for philosophy. It was also known for religion. Athens took great pride in her spirituality. When you think about ancient Greece, great thinkers come to mind. People like Plato and Aristotle, Socrates. There were so many great thinkers of philosophy that came from ancient Greece, Athens in particular. We are told in the history books that Athens had some 30,000 gods and goddesses in the city. 30,000. Not all of them had a temple or a shrine or an altar, but many of them did. If you and I went to the highest point of Athens, we would find the Acropolis. The Acropolis was a large temple to various gods and goddesses. It was believed that Zeus, Vulcan, Nike lived there, just to name a few. That they lived right there in the Acropolis. And all throughout the streets and all throughout the country, uh, uh, the, the city and the outer skirts of the city, all throughout that area, that whole region, it was littered with all types of altars. 30,000 known gods and goddesses. That prompted one Greek comic to say it this way, in Athens, there are more gods than people. 
It caused another comic to say that when it comes to the gods and goddesses of Greek mythology, they are a little beyond us, and they're much like us. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you realize that, that those gods and goddesses, they threw temper tantrums. They held grudges against one another and against humanity. And they engaged in promiscuous activity. In fact, they were not much different than the people who worshipped them. The gods were a little bit beyond them, but not much different than them. They were a whole lot like people. And so Paul is there, and, and when he goes in, he is, he's overwhelmed by this uh, lostness. He's overwhelmed by the idolatry, and he is angry. He's disturbed, but it does not leave him as a cultural critic or paralyzed. He goes into the synagogue and into the marketplace, and he reasons with people every day. I'm inspired by that. He went into the synagogue, and he found people like him. He went to the marketplace, and he found people not like him. He went to his own. He went to those who were not his own. He went to the synagogue, and who did he find? He found Jews and other God-fearing Greeks, and he would reason with them, and he would try to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. But he didn't stay in there. He went into the marketplace. Who did he find in the marketplace? He found people that were totally different than him. They had different lifestyles. They had different philosophies. They had different worldviews. They had different mindsets. The only thing they had in common is that they too were made in the Imago Dei, the very image of God. Beyond that, they had nothing. He, he had nothing in common with those people. Now let me ask you, which is easier? For you to go reason with people like you or for you to go reason with people not like you? Which is easier? For you to go to your own people or for you to go to a people not your own? I know the answer. You know the answer. It is far easier for us to go and mingle with church people. We go to church because we need to go to church. And many times we just surround ourselves with church people because we like to be around our own tribe. We like to be around our own folks. But take a page out of Paul's lesson. Here in Acts chapter 17, he went not only to the synagogue, but he also went to the marketplace. He went to people that were like him, Jews, God-fearing Greeks. He went to people that were not like him, Epicureans, Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics were the two leading philosophies of Athens in that day. They were as different as night and day. They were both uh, equally pagan. But their approach to life was very different. Epicureans, they were secular atheists. They believed there was no God. They were hedonists. They said the highest goal of life is personal pleasure. So here comes an Epicurean statement. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. Now we don't have Epicureans today, at least not by title. But you've heard that phrase before, haven't you? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. I don't know about you, but I went to, I went to college with some Epicureans because all they did was eat, drink, and be merry. And they thought that tomorrow they were going to die, right? I mean, that's how they just lived life. They did whatever they wanted to do. They were very hedonistic in their approach to life. Their desire, their goal was personal pleasure. 
They lived as if God did not exist. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know any Epicureans? Secular atheists? Then you had Stoics. Stoics were not secular atheists. Stoics were pantheists. That simply means they believed everything was God. They believed everything, pan, everything, all. They believed everything was worthy of worship. Everything you could worship uh, as a god or a goddess. They were pantheistic. They also were very interested in logic and reason. And a Stoic wanted to be unmoved by inner feelings. Now that aspect of being a Stoic is still in our culture today, right? We describe someone as Stoic. What does that mean? It means that their facial features, unmoved by emotion. They just have a dead stare, kind of like some of you are staring at me right now. Very stoic, very unmoved by anything that's being said, right? So you, you know what it is to be stoic. It, it's somebody who just seems to be immovable, not, not moved by anything, has it all together, understands everything. Very, very stoic. Paul bumped into Epicureans and Stoics. And what was he doing? He was reasoning with them. Which means that what he said in the synagogue, he was also saying in the marketplace that Jesus is Lord. He is Christ. The, the God of the universe stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. And he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cruel cross for your sins and mine. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. Now, this gospel presentation in the marketplace to people that were not like Paul, they didn't walk like him, talk like him, act like him. If they had capacity, they would not vote like him. I mean, they were completely different than Paul. They said, this man's a babbler. Now, that's not a compliment. That's a, that's a word of ridicule. A babbler literally depicts a bird who flies around from one gutter to another gutter from one alleyway to another alleyway, just picking up seeds here and picking up seeds there. And so it's just a conglomeration of ignorance. This is a babbler. What is this babbler trying to say? Others said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not as stupid as you think he is. I think he's advocating a God that we've never heard of before. I think he's advocating a foreign god. Now, collectively, we have a pretty good grasp of the 30,000 gods and goddesses in Athens, but this cat, he is talking about a foreign god. So they invited him. Will you go with us to the Areopagus? That's a strange word, isn't it? Areopagus. That was the council of Athens. Literally, it was made up of 30 men. They were called 30 governors. They were the ones that would hear cases, hear ideas. They would make judgments on civil matters, on criminal matters, on legal matters. They would talk incessantly all day long. In fact, Luke says that the Athenians wanted nothing more than to just talk and talk and talk and talk. It's constant talk radio. That's what the city of Athens is all about. It is constant talking. It's constant blabbering about all types of ideas. So what they thought, they thought Paul was a rich man who was coming into Athens in the hopes of purchasing a piece of land so that he could construct an altar to his foreign god. 
So let's let him stand before the decision makers. Let him stand before the elite of the elite. Let him stand before the Areopagus. The word Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. It was believed that on this hill, Ares was brought and judged for his war crimes. It was also believed that on this hill, the Areopagus, that the council would wage war for ideas. So very appropriate for it to be on the hill of Ares, the hill of war, that all these debates would take place. Now, the, the Roman counterpart to the Greek god Ares is a god named Mars. In Roman mythology, Mars is the god of war. That's why sometimes uh, when you come to Acts 17, it describes it as Paul on Mars Hill. Because Mars Hill and the Areopagus, they're synonyms. The hill of Ares is the same thing as the hill of Mars. So Paul is there on Mars Hill. It's the place where, where war is waged over ideas. And Paul stands before them. Now, if you were Paul, how would you talk about Jesus in an utterly pagan culture? How would you talk about Jesus to the elite of the elites of your area? What would you say? How would you say it? How would you approach it? Paul's approach is nothing short of brilliant. His conversation is a gospel conversation. He has cultural sensitivity. Men of Athens, he begins. I see that you are very religious in every way. I've walked around your great city. It's a beautiful city. You have all types of temples and altars. In fact, I found at least one altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you proclaim to be unknown, I'm about to make known to you. Friends, at that moment, every member of the Areopagus, every Epicurean and Stoic, every listener who had gathered around, they're on the edge of their stone seats. What Paul's about to do, he's about to make known a mystery in their culture. Because I think that Paul is very well aware that about 600 years from his day, there was a severe plague that came through Athens, Greece. It killed thousands of Athenians. The people of Athens, they didn't know which god or goddess had caused this calamity. In an effort to appease all of them, the story goes that the people of Athens took a flock of sheep, they let them loose in the city streets. Wherever each individual sheep would land, he would land to his own death. Somebody would come up right behind him, slaughter that bad boy lamb, and construct an altar to a god or goddess that was in close proximity to where the place that lamb laid down. But the problem was, some of those lambs, they went pretty far. They went outside of the city streets, and they laid down in fields. And sure enough, the people would come. They would slaughter that sheep. They would build an altar, but they would look around, and there was no existing temple to a god or goddess. So they said, okay, this altar 
is dedicated to an unknown God. They wanted to cover all their bases. They didn't know which deity was responsible for the calamity, so they thought to themselves, we gotta, we got to appease all of them, because if we appease all of them, then certainly we'll appease the right one. So they sacrificed to an unknown God. The reality is there were several altars marked to an unknown God in the city of Athens. I think Paul is very aware of this. He is culturally sensitive to that. He says, men of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. What you worship as unknown, I'm about to make known unto you. He could have blasted them. He could have blasted them for their ignorance, blasted them for their pagan idolatry. And if we were there, and if we were reading it, many of us would go, amen, Paul, sick them, give it to them. But he's culturally sensitive. He's trying to build a bridge to them in the hopes of capturing their mind in pursuit of their heart. So he begins by talking about this unknown God. The God that I'm talking about is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's a creator of all things, seen and unseen, Paul says. It's not that you can house my God in a temple made by human hands. In him we have life and breath and everything else. It's not that my God needs us, but we definitely need him. It's a different kind of God than anything that you see here in the streets of Athens. What Paul is saying is that if, if my God didn't exist, the world would stop spinning. If my God didn't exist, the birds would stop singing. If my God didn't exist, the sun in the sky would stop shining. If my God didn't exist, you would forget how to inhale and exhale. Because in him we have life and breath and everything else. My God made all of us from one man, Paul says. From one man, we call him Adam. From one set of parents, Adam and Eve, every person derives its origin. All of us can trace ourselves back to our first parents of Adam and Eve. And Paul says, my God is the one who has made every person, giving them Time and place and space, raising up every nation. The Athenians thought they were superior to everybody. What Paul is saying is that my God put you here on purpose, but you're no better than the people of Rome, to which there would have been a collective gasp. What are you saying? We're no better than the people of Rome? No. The reality is, what by, by insinuating, Paul is saying, look, God put all of us on purpose at a certain spot. So God is greater than the people of Athens and God is greater than the people of Rome and God is greater than the people of London and God is greater than the people of Tokyo and God is greater than the people of Washington, D.C. and God is greater than the people of Pelham, Helena, and Alabaster. God is greater than the people of Birmingham. God is greater than everybody anywhere and everybody is where they are by God's design. God set their time and their space. Now, you've made a bunch of idols, Paul says, in the hopes that you would bring near a far-off God. But my God is not that far off. 
My God is rather near to you. Why did God, who made heaven and earth and every human being, why did he do that? Paul says, so that you might seek him. The word seek, it means it's the picture of groping in darkness. That you may seek him, that you may search for him, that you may try to find him. And Paul says he's not that far from any one of us. In fact, if you want to know my God, all you have to do is repent. That's what Paul says in verse 30. If you want to know my God, if you want to know this God that you think is unknown that I'm making known to you, if you want to know him personally, all you have to do is repent. See, in the past, he would allow such ignorance to be overlooked. Don't miss that word ignorance. Paul just called the Areopagus ignorant. This is the seat of intellect. This is the place where wisdom is housed there in Athens, Greece. And Paul says that my God allowed you to be as ignorant as you are. But now he wants you to repent. The way you get to my God is to repent. For he has chosen the man who will judge rightly. Oh, it's at that moment that everybody on the Areopagus, they thought, I bet that's me. I mean, I'm pretty smart. I can judge people. I'm wise. I know right from wrong. I bet that this man named Paul has come to our town so that he can tell us that the unknown God has said to him, let me show you who the one I'm going to appoint to judge everybody else. So all 30 members of the Areopagus, they begin to swell their chest. They said, yes, I bet I'm the one, I'm the one. And Paul says, God has chosen the man that he has appointed and he's given some proof of that man. Now everybody's really on the edge of their stone seat. Who is this man? The one God raised from the dead. Resurrection? <laughs> from the dead? Epicureans and Stoics, they begin to sneer and chuckle and laugh. you got to be kidding me. I, I was taking you serious there for a moment, but, but now you're talking about, you're talking about, we've heard of this guy, you're talking about the one named Jesus who people say is the son of God who came and died on a cross and three days later raised from the dead. And Paul says, that's exactly who I'm talking about. He's the one. He's the one who's been appointed to judge rightly. And the way you get to my God is with a little R and R. I'm not talking about rest and relaxation. I'm talking about repentance and resurrection. The way you get to my God is to repent of sin and believe in the one he raised from the dead. See, Paul's conversation is not only culturally sensitive, but it's also Christologically saturated in the hopes that they would give their head and their heart unto Christ. It was John R.W. Stott who said the Christian religion at its essence is a resurrection religion. You take the resurrection out of Christianity and Christianity is destroyed. And friends, that's true. You've heard me say that our religion, our faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, bodily, physically, literally, 
if somehow they could find the bones of Jesus, our faith would deteriorate. Everything about Christianity would collapse. But I'm here to tell you, they ain't never found the bones of Jesus. And they're not going to. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection is true, it is accurate, it is biblical. It was a physical resurrection, it was a bodily resurrection. He is the first fruit of resurrection. He's the hope of resurrection. Because he was raised, we have the knowledge that we too will be raised to meet him in the air. So the resurrection is the, is the centerpiece of our understanding of Christianity. Because everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. It is John R. W. Stott who's exactly right, that our Christianity is a resurrection religion. Without it, it's destroyed. In Paul's conversation, he is culturally sensitive and he is Christologically saturated in the hopes of complete surrender of head and heart unto Christ. We are told that when they laughed Paul off the stage, not everybody laughed. Some of them believed there was a man, a member of the Areopagus, Dionysius. There was a woman, Damaris. And, Luke says, some others. Some other people that were there. They became believers. Because by the Spirit's power, their head and their heart were captured. And they surrendered it completely unto Christ. You hear that story and you think to yourself, what's the lesson for you and for me? If we're going to engage in intellectual evangelism. Let me give you a couple takeaways. Here's the first one. We have to be culturally sensitive to those groping in darkness. You and I have to be culturally sensitive to those groping in darkness. We have to build a bridge to them. Exactly what Paul did. Men of Athens, I see you're very religious in every way. In fact, you have an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown, let me make known to you today. He is being so culturally sensitive. He knows the story behind the inscription of the unknown God. He even quotes one of their poets. In him we have life and breath and everything else. Uh, he, he, uh, we are his offspring. He's quoting one of the Athenian poets. I mean, he is trying his best to be culturally sensitive. You look in this culture and you see a bunch of idols, don't you? Let me give you a good working definition of an idol. An idol is anything that takes your attention, your affection, your allegiance off of Jesus Christ. That's an idol. An idol is anything that takes your attention, your affection, your allegiance off of Jesus Christ. A good thing can become a God thing. Even a good thing can become an idol. You can make an idol out of anything. Your children, your grandchildren, your work, your power, your success, your sex, what's uh, 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 parked there in your driveway, what's docked there at the lake house, what is pictured on the mantle. You can make anything into an idol. An idol is anything that takes your attention, your affection, your allegiance off of Jesus Christ. When something else becomes prominent and preeminent in your life, that, my friends, is an idol. It is far easier to identify the idols of other cultures than our culture. It is easier to see the idol in somebody else's life than the idol in our own life. But ask yourself the question, is there anything that takes my attention, my affection, my allegiance away from Jesus? If there is, that is a prime idol in your life. When you address our culture that is stuffed with idols, 
You might get angry, but don't let that anger cause you to be paralyzed for the gospel where you do nothing. Don't cause that anger to make you into a cultural critic. Listen, we've got enough angry Christians and angry preachers and angry churches. We don't need another one. What we do need is we need some people, some missionaries. We need some evangelists. We need some individuals who love Jesus and want to make him known. We need some people who are saying, you know what? I want to do my best to go to people like me and people not like me. And I want to have a concerted effort to give a gospel conversation that is culturally sensitive to them. I want you to go to your synagogues and I want you to go to your marketplaces. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I want you to go to places where people are just like you. They look like you, they act like you, they vote like you, they walk like you, they talk like you, they dress like you, they eat like you. All right? You need to go to the people that are like you. And you need to reason with them about how Jesus is the Christ. But you also need to go to the marketplace. You need to go places where there are people that are totally not like you. The only thing you have in common with them is that you're both made in the image of God. And the only thing you have in common is your first parents, Adam and Eve. Beyond that, you got nothing in common with them. And that person could be your coworker. It could be your neighbor. It could be a family member. Somebody who just has a totally different worldview, totally different philosophy. You're dealing with some Epicureans and some Stoics, some people that believe there is no God, some people who believe everything is God, and then you have some people all the way in between, and you're dealing with them, and you're reasoning with them to tell them Jesus is Christ. But along the way, be sensitive to those groping in darkness. Second thing I would say quickly is that your conversation needs to be Christologically saturated. The great temptation when you and I go into the marketplace and we talk to people that are so much not like us, the temptation is to tone down our speech on Jesus. The temptation is to tone it down to the lowest common denominator and just talk about God in general, higher power in general, the great spirit in general. No, Paul is Christologically saturated in his conversation he never made less of Jesus he made much of Jesus now you may push back and say oh but pastor Jesus is not mentioned in his conversation at the Areopagus and while the word Jesus is not undoubtedly he's talking about Jesus because what does he say the way you get to my God is to repent and believe upon the one he raised from the dead who else can he be talking about His conversation was Christologically saturated. You have a lot of conversations. In fact, the studies have told us that every person talks about somewhere between 7,000 words a day to 20,000 words a day. And yes, it's true, men, you're more on the 7,000 range. And ladies, you're more on the 20,000 range. And I'm just going to leave it right there. not going to say anything more about that. But all of us speak thousands upon thousands of words every day. We talk about our likes, we talk about our dislikes, we talk about our job, we talk about school, we talk about our test, we talk about our future, we talk about our children, we talk about our grandchildren, we talk about our sports, we talk about our weather, we talk about our dreams, our hopes, our plans, our goals, we talk about the things we like, we talk about the things that disgust us, we talk about everything. Evaluate your conversation. How much of your conversation is Christologically saturated? I'm not saying you just got to talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time. But I'm saying 
How often do you try, do you think about, how can I work this conversation towards Calvary? How can I massage this conversation towards the Messiah? How, how, how can I turn, how can I pivot, how can I spin this conversation so I can give glory to God in Jesus Christ based on this conversation? Oh, friends, we, we've got to be culturally sensitive, but not to the neglect of being Christologically saturated. We've got to speak about Jesus. We cannot make less of him. We've got to make more of him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything that we need. If that's true for us, that's true for everybody in your synagogue and everybody in your marketplace, everybody who's like you, everybody who's not like you, everybody you want to go to, everybody you don't want to go to, it's true for every person. Jesus plus nothing equals everything that we've ever needed. And if that's true, we've got to make much of Jesus. So Jesus must be in our speech. Our conversation must be Christologically saturated. So that we just ooze Jesus. The reason you're given lips is to glorify God and to make much of Jesus. I mean, there is a wonderful byproduct. You can also kiss your spouse. And so that's why you have lips. But the primary reason you have lips is to worship, glorify God, and make Jesus known. That's why God gave you the ability to speak. He did not have to. You don't have to be able to speak in order to live. But the reason God gave you the capacity to speak is so that you could praise him and worship, so you could glorify him and make him known in your conversation. Our gospel conversations have to be culturally sensitive, Christologically saturated, with the aim of complete surrender of head and heart unto Christ. I told you... uh, that before Paul left the Areopagus, Dionysius became a believer. So did Damaris. That's a man and a woman. You know what? Jesus is still saving men and women. Those are the only two genders, by the way. But he's still saving men and women. He's saving educated and uneducated. He's saving wealthy and poor. This one who's a member of the Areopagus, history tells us that Dionysius, he became the first bishop of Athens. Would he have become a Christian if it hadn't been for the boldness of the Apostle Paul? Maybe, maybe not. Who are the people that God is leading you to and he's going to use them in a mighty way so like Dionysius, he's going to use them to lead hundreds of people to a saving knowledge of Christ? You don't know who they are, do you? You don't know who the Dionysius is in your life yet. It's only history that reveals what that person does with the gospel you gave them in Jesus Christ. So we have to present the gospel in such a way that we are culturally sensitive to that person. We are Christologically saturated. Don't ever tone down your conversation of Jesus so that the ultimate goal, complete surrender, of head and heart to Christ. The last thing we need are people who've only surrendered their head to Jesus. And the last thing we need are people who only surrender their heart to Jesus. We don't need more people who've just filled their minds with information. We don't need more people who are just moved to inspiration in their heart. We need some people who have transformation of head and heart. They're completely changed, completely transformed. So the only way I'm effective is if I surrender everything to Jesus. 
in the hopes that those I speak to will surrender everything they have unto Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live so I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Why do we surrender everything? Because God surrendered everything in Jesus for our salvation. He deserves and demands nothing less from us. So we surrender everything to him in the hopes that who we talk to about Jesus will surrender everything they have unto Christ. Intellectual evangelism is a gospel conversation that is culturally sensitive and Christologically saturated with the goal of complete surrender of head and heart unto Christ. Is there anybody here who needs to surrender to Jesus? Surrender your all. Surrender everything. Is there anybody here and you've got somebody in mind who's your Areopagus, somebody in mind who's your Dionysius, somebody in mind who's your Damaris, somebody who you say, you know what, this is a person who definitely needs to hear the gospel and God is going to use me to do it. i got to be sensitive. i got to be saturated in the hopes of complete surrender unto Christ. Maybe this morning you need to come and join the church. Maybe you need to surrender unto the Lord in salvation. Maybe you need to come and pray for a family member, a friend, a co-worker. As God leads, you respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, move and have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.